0: Chapter Four Part Two of the Brotherhood of the Seven Kings. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Brotherhood of the Seven Kings by L. T. Mead and Robert Eustace. Chapter Four The Luck of Pitsey Hall. Part Two. On the following Saturday, the twenty seventh, I arrived at Pitsey Hall where a warm welcome awaited me. The ball was to be on the following Tuesday, the 2nd of March. There was a large house-party, and the late burglary was still the topic of conversation. After dinner, when the ladies had left the dining-room, Pitsy and I drew our chairs together, and presently the conversation drifted to Mrs. Delacour, the mysterious murder, and Madame Colucci. "'The police are completely nonplussed,' said Pitsy. "'I doubt if the man who committed that rascally crime will ever be brought to justice.' I was speaking to Madame on the subject to-day, and although she was very hopeful when she first arrived at Fram Manor, she is now almost inclined to agree with me. By the way, Mrs. Delacour's state is most alarming. She loses strength hour by hour." "'I can quite understand that,' I replied. If the murderer were discovered it would be an immense relief to her. "'So,' Madame says, I know she is terribly anxious about her patient. "'By the way, knowing that she was an acquaintance of yours, I asked her here to-night.' but unfortunately she had another engagement which she could not postpone. What a wonderfully well-informed woman she is! She spent hours at the hall this morning, examining my curios. She gave me information about some of them, which was news to me. But she has been many times now round my collection. It is a positive treat to talk with any one so intelligent. And if she were not so keen about my Venetian goblet— "'What?' I interrupted. "'The goblet you spoke to me about in Brussels, the one which has been in your family since fifteen hundred. "'The same,' he answered, nodding his head, and lowering his voice a trifle. "'It has been in the family, as you say, since fifteen hundred. Madame has shown bad taste in the matter, and I am surprised at her. "'Pray explain yourself,' I said. "'She first saw it last November, when she came here with the Delacours. "'I shall never forget her stare of astonishment. "'She stood perfectly still for at least two minutes, gazing at it without speaking. "'When she turned round at last she was white as a ghost, and asked me where I got it from.' i told her and she offered me ten thousand pounds for it on the spot a large figure i remarked i was much annoyed continued pitsey and told her i would not sell it at any price did she give any reason for wishing to obtain it yes she said she had a goblet very like it in her own collection and wished to purchase this one in order to complete one of the most unique collections of old venetian glass in england the woman must be fabulously rich or even her passion for curios would not induce her to offer so preposterous a sum. Since her residence at Fram Manor she has been constantly here, and still takes, I can see, the deepest interest in the goblet, often remarking about it. She says it has got quite a remarkably pure musical note, very clear and distinct. But come, head, you would like to see it. We will go into the drawing-room, and I will show it to you." As Pitsy spoke, he rose, and led me through the great central hall into the inner drawing-room, a colossal apartment, supported by Corinthian pillars, and magnificently decorated. "'As you know, the goblet has been in our family for many centuries,' he went on. "'And we call it, from Eulin's Ballad of the Old Cumberland Tradition, The Luck of Pitsy Hall. You know Longfellow's translation, of course. Here it is, Head. Is it not a wonderful piece of work? Have a close look at it. It is worth examining.' The goblet in question stood about six feet from the ground on a pedestal of solid malachite, which was placed in a niche in the wall. One glance was sufficient to show me that it was a gem of art. The cup, which was eight inches in diameter, was made of thin glass of a pale ruby colour. Some mystical letters were etched on the outside of the glass, small portions of which could be seen, but screening them from any closer interpretation was some twisted fancy-work, often to be observed on old Venetian goblets. If by any chance this fancy work were chipped off, the letters would be plainly visible. The cup itself was supported on an open work stem, richly gilt and enameled, with colored filigree work, the whole supported again on a base set with opal, agate, lapis-lazuli, turquoise, and pearl. From the center of the cup, and in reality supporting it, was a central column of pale green glass, which bore what was apparently some heraldic design. Stepping up close, I tapped the cup gently with my finger. It gave out, as Pitsy had described, a note of music singularly sweet and clear. I then proceeded to examine the stem, and saw at once that the design formed a row of separate crowns. Scarcely knowing why, I counted them. There were seven. A queer suspicion crept over me. The sequence of late events passed rapidly through my mind, and a strange relationship between circumstances, apparently having no connection, began to appear. I turned to Pitsy. Can you tell me how this goblet came into your possession?" I asked. "'Certainly,' he replied. "'The legend which is attached to this goblet is this. We are, as you know, descended from an old Italian family, the Pisces, our present name being merely an anglicised corruption of the Italian. My children and I still bear Italian-Christian names, as you know, and our love of the old country amounts almost to a passion.' the Pisies were great people in venice in the sixteenth century at that time the city had an immense fame for its beautiful glass the manufacturers forming a guild and the secret being jealously kept it was during this time that catherine de medici by her arbitrary and tyrannical administration roused the opposition of a catholic party at whose head was the duke of alencon her own fourth son among the duke's followers was my ancestor giovanni Pisi. it was discovered that an order had been sent by catherine de medici to one of the manufacturers at venice to construct that very goblet which you see there after its construction it was for some secret purpose sent to the laboratory of an alchemist in venice where it was seized by giovanni pizzi and has been handed down in our family ever since but what is the meaning of the seven crowns on the stem i asked that i cannot tell they probably have no special significance i thought otherwise but kept my ideas to myself we turned away a beautiful young voice was filling the drawing-room with sweetness. I went up to the piano to listen to Antonia Pitzi, while she sang an Italian song as only one who had Italian blood in her veins could. Antonia was a beautiful girl, dark, with luminous eyes and an air of distinction about her. "'I wish you would tell me something about your friend Vivian,' I said, as she rose from the piano. "'Oh, Mr. Head, I am so unhappy about her,' was the low reply. "'I see her very often. She is altogether changed.' and as to Mrs. Delacour, the shock has been so sudden, so terrible, that I doubt she will ever recover. Mr. Head, I am so glad you have come. Vivian constantly speaks of you. She wants to see you to-morrow. Is she coming here? No, but you can meet her in the park. She has sent you a message. To-morrow is Sunday. Vivian is not going to church. May I take you to the rendezvous? I promised, and soon afterwards the evening came to an end. That night I was haunted by three main thoughts—the old Italian legend of the Goblet, the Seven Crowns, symbolic of the Brotherhood of the Seven Kings, and, finally, Madame's emotion when she first saw it, and her strong desire to obtain it. I wondered, had the burglary been committed by her instigation? Sleep I could not. My brain was too active and busy. I was certain there was mischief ahead, but try as I would I could only lose myself in strange conjectures." The following day I met Miss Delacour, as arranged, in the park. Antonia brought me to her and then left us together. The young girl's worn face, the pathetic expression in her large grey eyes, her evident nervousness and want of self-control, all appealed to me to a terrible degree. She asked me eagerly if any fresh clue had been obtained with regard to the murderer. I shook my head. "'If something is not done soon, Mother will lose her senses,' she remarked. "'Even Madame Colucci is in despair about her.' All her ordinary modes of treatment fail in Mother's case, and the strangest thing is, is that Mother has begun to take a most queer and unaccountable dislike to Madame herself. She says that Madame's presence in the room gives her an uncontrollable feeling of nervousness. This has become so bad that Mother and I return to town to-morrow. My cousin's house is too gay for us at present, and Mother refuses to stay any longer under Madame Kaluchy's roof. "'But why?' I asked. "'That I cannot explain to you.' For my part, I think Madame one of the best women on earth. She has been kindness itself to us, and I do not know what we should have done without her. I did not speak, and Vivian continued, after a pause. Mother's conduct makes Madame strangely unhappy. She told me so, and I pity her from my heart. We had a long talk on the subject yesterday. That was just before she began to speak of the goblet, and before Mr. Lewisham arrived. Mr. Lewisham, who is he? I asked. A great friend of Madame's. He comes to see her almost daily. He is very handsome, and I like him. But I did not know she was expecting him yesterday. She and I were in the drawing-room. She spoke of Mother, and then alluded to the goblet, the one at the hall. You have seen it, of course, Mr. Head?' I nodded. I was too much interested to interrupt the girl by words. "'My cousins call it the luck of Pitsy Hall. Well, Madame has set her heart on obtaining it, and she has gone to the length of offering cousin Leonardo ten thousand pounds for it. Mr. Pitsy told me last night that Madame had offered an enormous sum for the vase, I said. But it is useless, as he has no intention of selling. I told Madame so, replied Vivian. I know well what value my cousins place upon the old glass. I believe they think their luck would really go if anything happened to it. Heaven forbid, I replied involuntarily. It is a perfect gem of its kind. I know, I know. I never saw Madame so excited and unreasonable about anything." She begged of me to use my influence to try and get my cousin to let her have it. When I assured her that it was useless, she looked more annoyed than I had ever seen her. She took up a book and pretended to read. I went and sat behind one of the curtains near a window. The next moment Mr. Lewisham was announced. He came eagerly up to Madame. I don't think he saw me. "'Well,' he cried, "'any success? Have you secured it yet? If you have, we are absolutely safe. Has that child helped you?' I guessed that they were talking about me, and started up and disclosed myself. Madame did not take the slightest notice, but she motioned to Mr. Lewisham to come into another room. What can it all mean, Mr. Head?' "'That I cannot tell you, Vivian, but may I ask you one thing?' "'Certainly you may. Will you promise me to keep what you have just told me a secret from anybody else? I allude to Madame's anxiety to obtain the old goblet. There may be nothing in what I ask, or there may be much. Will you do this?' "'Of course I will. How queer you look!' I made no remark, and soon afterwards took my leave of her. Late that same evening Antonia Pizzi received a note from Vivian, in which she said that Madame Colucci, her mother and herself, were returning to town by an early train the following morning. The Delacours did not intend to come back to Fram Manor, but Madame would do so on Tuesday, in order to be in time for the Great Ball. She was going to town now, in order to be present at an early performance of For the Crown at the Lyceum, having secured a box on the grand tier for the occasion. This note was commented on without any special interest being attached to it, but restless already I now quickly made up my mind. I would also go up to town on the following day. I also would return to Pitsy Hall in time for the ball. Accordingly, at an early hour on the following day, I found myself in de Freyer's office." "'I tell you what it is,' I said. "'There is some plot, deeper than we think, brewing. Madame took from Manor after the murder of Delacour. She would not do so without a purpose. She is willing to spend ten thousand pounds in order to secure a goblet of old Venetian glass, which is one of the curios at Pitsey Hall. A man called Lewisham, who doubtless bears another alias, is in her confidence. Madame returns to town to-night with a definite motive. I have not the slightest doubt.' "'This is all very well, Norman,' replied de Frayer. But what we want are facts. You will lose your senses if you go on building up fantastic ideas. Madame comes up to town and is going to the Lyceum, at least so you tell me." "'Yes.' "'And you mean to follow her, to see if she has any designs on Forbes Robertson or Mrs. Patrick Campbell?' "'I mean to follow her,' I replied gravely. "'I mean to see what sort of man Lewisham is. It is possible that I may have seen him before.' Dufrayer shrugged his shoulders and turned away somewhat impatiently. As he did so, a wild thought suddenly struck me. "'What would you say,' I cried, "'if I suggested an idea to force Madame to divulge some clue to us?' "'My dear Norman, I should say that your fancies are getting the better of your reason, that is all.' "'Now listen to me,' I said. I sat down beside Defrayer. "'I have an idea which may serve us well. It is, of course, a bare chance, and if you like you may call it the conception of a madman.' "'Madame goes to the Lyceum to-night. She occupies a box on the grand tier.' In all probability, Lewisham will accompany her. Dufrayer, you and I will also be at the theatre, and, if possible, we will take a box on the second tier, exactly opposite to hers. I will bring Robertson, the principal and the trainer of the new deaf-and-dumb college, with me. I happen to know him well.' Dufrayer stared at me with some alarm in his face. "'Don't you see?' I went on excitedly. "'Robertson is a master of the art of lip-language. We will keep him in the back of the box.' about the middle of the play, and in one of the intervals when the electric light is full on, we will send a note to Madame's box, saying that the cipher on the blank sheet of paper has been read. The note will pretend to be an anonymous warning to her. We shall watch her, and by means of Robertson, hear—yes, hear—what she says. Robertson will watch her through opera-glasses, and he will be able to understand every word she speaks, just as you or I could if we were in her box beside her. The whole thing is a bare chance, I know but we may learn something, by taking her unsuspecting and unawares." Dufrayer thought for a minute, then he sprang to his feet. "'Magnificent!' he cried. "'Head, you are an extraordinary man! It is a unique idea. I will go off to the box-office at once, and take a box, if possible, opposite Madame, or, failing that, the best seats we can get. I only hope you can secure Robertson. Go to his house at once, and offer him any fee he wants. This is detection carried to a fine art with a vengeance. If successful, I shall class you as the smartest criminal agent of the day. We both meet at the Lyceum at the quarter to eight. Now there is not a moment to lose." I drove down to Robertson's house in Brompton, found him at home, and told him my wish. I strongly impressed upon him that if he would help he would be aiding in the cause of justice. He became keenly interested, entered fully into the situation, and refused to accept any fee. At the appointed hour we met De Frere at the theatre door and learned that he had secured a box on the second tier directly opposite Madame Colucci's box on the grand tier. I had arranged to have my letter sent by a messenger at ten o'clock. We took our seats, and a few moments later Madame Colucci, in rose-coloured velvet and blazing with diamonds, accompanied by a tall, dark, clean-shaven man, entered her box. I drew back into the shadow of my own box and watched her. She bowed to one or two acquaintances in the stalls, then sat down, leaning her arm on the plush-covered edge of her box. Robertson never took his eyes off her, and I felt reassured as he repeated to us the chance bits of conversation that he could catch between her and her companion. The play began, and a few minutes past ten in one of the intervals I saw Madame turn and receive my note, with a slight gesture of surprise. She tore it open, and her face paled perceptibly. Robertson, as I had instructed him, stood in front of me. His opera-glasses were fixed on the faces of Madame and her companion. I watched Madame as she read the note. She then handed it to Lewisham, who read it also. They looked at each other, and I saw Madame's lips moving. Simultaneously, Robertson began to make the following report verbatim. Impossible. Some trick. Quite safe. Goblet. Key to cipher. Tomorrow night. Then followed a pause. Life and death to us. Signed. My name. There was another long pause, and I saw Madame twist the paper nervously in her fingers. I looked at Dufrayer our eyes met my heart was beating his face had become drawn and gray the ghastly truth and the explanation were slowly sealing their impress upon our brains the darkness of doubt had lifted the stunning truth was clear the paper which had defied us was a cipher written by madame in her own name and doubtless implicated her with delacour's murder her anxiety to secure the goblet was very obvious in some subtle way handed down doubtless through generations the goblet, once in the possession of the ancient brotherhood, had held the key of the secret cipher. But to-morrow night—tomorrow night was the night of the ball, and Madame was to be there. The reasoning was so obvious that the chain of evidence struck to Freyer and me simultaneously. We immediately left the theatre. There was one thing to be done, and that without delay. I must catch the first train in the morning to Pitsy Hall, examine the goblet afresh, and tell Pitsy everything, and thus secure and protect the goblet from harm. If possible, I would myself discover the key to the cipher, which, if our reasoning was true, would place Madame in a felon's dock and see the end of the Brotherhood. At ten o'clock the following morning I reached Pitsy Hall. When I arrived I found, as I expected, the house in more or less confusion. Pitsy was busily engaged superintending arrangements and directing the servants in their work. It was some little time before I could see him alone. "'What is the matter, my dear fellow?' he said. "'I am very busy now.' "'Come into the library, and I will tell you,' I replied. As soon as ever we were alone, I unfolded my story. Hardened by years of contact with the world, it was difficult to startle or shake the composure of Leonardo Pizzi, and before I had finished my strange tale, I could see from his expression the difficulty I should have in convincing him of the truth. "'I have had my suspicions for a long time,' I said in conclusion. "'These are not the first dealings I have had with Madame Colucci.' Hitherto she has eluded all my efforts to get her within the arm of the law. But I believe her time is near. Pitsy, your goblet is in danger. You will remove it to some place of safety.' "'Remove the luck of Pitsy Hall on the night when my boy comes of age?' replied Pitsy, frowning as he spoke. "'It is good of you to be interested, head, but really—' "'Well, I never knew you were such an imaginative man. As to any accident taking place to-night, that is quite outside the realms of probability.' The band will be placed in front of the goblet, and it is impossible for anything to happen to it, as none of the dancers can come near it. Now, have you anything more to say?" "'I beg of you to be guided by me and to put the goblet into a place of safety,' I repeated. "'You don't suppose I would try to scare you with a cock and bull story? There is reason in what I say. I know that woman. My uneasiness is far more than due to mere imagination.' to please your head i will place two of my footmen beside the goblet during the ball in order to prevent the slightest chance of any one approaching it there will that satisfy you i was obliged to bow my acquiescence and pitsey soon left me in order to attend to his multifarious duties i spent nearly an hour that morning examining the goblet afresh the mystical writing on the cup concealed by the open-work design engrossed my most careful attention but so well were the principal letters concealed by the outside ornaments that i could make nothing of them was i after all entirely mistaken or did this beautiful work of art contain hidden within itself the power for which i longed the strange key to the mysterious paper which would convict madame koluchy of a capital charge the evening came at last and about nine the guests began to arrive the first dance had hardly come to an end before madame koluchy appeared on the scene she wore a dress of cloth of silver and her appearance caused an almost imperceptible lull in the dancing and conversation as she walked slowly up the great ballroom on the arm of a country magnate, all eyes turned to look at her. She passed me with a hardening about the corners of her mouth as she acknowledged my bow, and I fancy I saw her eyes wander in the direction of the goblet at the other end of the room. Soon afterwards, Antonia Pizzi came to my side. "How beautiful everything is," she said. "Did you ever see anyone look quite so lovely as Madame? Her dress tonight gives her a regal appearance. Have you seen our dance program?" The queen waltz will be played just after supper." "'So you have fallen a victim to the popular taste,' I answered. "'I hear that waltz everywhere.' "'But you don't know who has composed it?' said the girl, with an arch look. "'Now I don't mind confiding in you. It is Madame Colucci.' I could not help starting. "'I was unaware that she was a musician,' I remarked. "'She is, and a most accomplished one. We have included the waltz in our programme by her special request. I am so glad. It is the most lively and inspiriting air I ever danced to. Antonia was called away, and I leant against the wall, too ill at ease to dance or take any active part in the revels of the hour. The moments flew by, and at last the festive and brilliant notes of the queen waltz sounded on my ears. Couples came thronging into the ballroom as soon as this most fascinating melody was heard. To listen to its seductive measures was enough to make your feet tingle and your heart beat. Once again I watched Madame Colucci as she moved through the throng. Ottavio Pizzi, the hero of the evening, was now her partner. There was a slight colour in her usually pale cheeks, and I had never seen her look more beautiful. I was standing not far from the band, and could not help noticing how the dominant note, repeated in two bars when all the instruments played together in harmony, rang out with a peculiar and almost passionate insistence. Suddenly, without a moment's warning, and with a clap that struck the dancers motionless, a loud crash rang through the room. The music instantly ceased, and the priceless heirloom of the Pitsies lay in a thousand silvered splinters on the polished floor. There was a moment's pause of absolute silence, followed by a sharp cry from our host, and then a hum of voices as the dancers hurried toward the scene of the disaster. The consternation and dismay were indescribable. Pitsy, with a face like death, was gazing horror-struck at the base and stem of the vase which still kept their place on the malachite stand, the cup alone being shivered to fragments. The two footmen who had been standing under the pedestal looked as if they had been struck by an unseen hand. Pushing my way almost roughly through the crowded throng, I reached the spot. Nothing remained but the stem and the jewelled base of the goblet. Silent and gazing at the throng as one in a dream, stood Madame Colucci. Antonia had crept up close to her father, her face as white as her dress. The luck of Pitsy Hall, she murmured, and on this night, of all nights. As for me, I felt my brain almost reeling with excitement for the moment the thoughts which surged through it numbed my capacity for speech i saw a servant gathering up the fragments the evening was ended and the party gradually broke up to go on dancing would have been impossible it was not till some hours afterwards that the whole satanic scheme burst upon me the catastrophe admitted of but one explanation the dominant note repeated in two bars when all the instruments played together in harmony must have been the note accordant with that of the cup of the goblet, and by the well-known laws of acoustics, when so played, it shattered the goblet. Next day there was an effort made to piece together the shattered fragments, but some were missing. How removed, by whom taken, no one could ever tell. Beyond doubt the characters cunningly concealed by the open-work pattern contained the key to the cipher, but once again Madame had escaped. The ingenuity, the genius of the woman, placed her beyond the ordinary consequences of crime. Delacour's murder still remains unavenged. Will the truth ever come to light? End of chapter 4